Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, God bless you. It's good to see you this morning. I'm glad you made it out. It's a bit of a, the weather's kind of dreary. It's getting a little chilly, but Jesus is risen. And I know that that's what we're supposed to say at church, but at some point, I think every Christian has to have a moment where we realize if that's not enough, that's where I have to start. If that's not enough to lift my heart, that's where I have to start in the process of coming alive again in my heart. This morning, we're going to continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I don't know if we can get that first slide up there, but this is not about um, when a mom dishes off responsibility to the other parent. Ask your father. (laughs) But the message is about prayer and the idea that whatever it is we're asking in prayer, Jesus gives us a very, very strong reminder that the person we're asking is not some faceless deity up in the sky. He is our good, good father. And I want to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Here's what it says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I'm going to just take a wild guess, but I would say in this room... We have wildly different experiences and feelings about the subject of prayer. If I were to take a poll and ask, how many of you just feel really great about prayer? Every day you're just so thankful. And those people, even if I don't invite you, you're probably still going to raise your hand because you're in that place. You're just so grateful that the miracle of prayer exists. There will be some there. And others say, I don't even know what prayer is anymore. I don't know why we would bother doing it. I've done it for years and nothing ever changes. And I'm just so disappointed and disillusioned. So I think in any given church on any given Sunday, people run a large spectrum of experiences and feelings and attitudes about prayer. It is, understandably, a very emotionally and spiritually complex issue. I don't think the, the, the way to address that then is to try to give simplistic and pat answers that train us on how to recite the truth. It is to address why we all fall in such different places with respect to prayer. I mean, think about it. God is infinitely wise. He's infinitely powerful. He's infinitely loving. And he invites us to access him, to connect to him through prayer. If you knew a billionaire, if you knew a president, well, or if you knew a celebrity, Wouldn't you leverage that connection as often as you could? And yet it's strange that many, many Christians admit about this one subject, yeah, I I really, I believe all that stuff in theory, 
But my prayer life is just not where I wish it was. I don't really pray very earnestly or very often. Now, here's one thing I believe, and I think I'm agreeing with Jesus when I say this. Nobody grows in their prayer life by being made to feel guilty or ashamed of their lack of a prayer life. In fact, I don't think I've ever met a person who genuinely grew inside because of shame and guilt. Do you? I I think some of us try to influence others that way. I'm going to shame you till you get better. But it never works. The human heart does not grow through shame and guilt. It grows through invitation. It grows through encouragement. And so I'm so grateful that when Jesus turns his attention to prayer, instead of rebuking the prayerlessness that exists in the world, he reminds his listeners why prayer is one of the greatest gifts that we have. And if we don't access it, we end up so much poorer because it is something God gave us that if we don't engage in it, we're going to miss one of the best aspects of knowing him. And so he offers encouragement and invitation to prayer. And I think this is especially encouraging for people whose prayer lives are not where they wish they were for a number of reasons. And so I want to explore several groups of people who will be encouraged by Jesus' invitation to pray. The first group we want to look at are the inconsistent. And again, we're not going to raise our hands, but I think this describes a lot of us that our prayer lives are somewhat inconsistent. And so Jesus begins very flat out right away with a a very open call. It's really important, guys, that you pray. In fact, he thinks it's so important, he says it three times. And I thought a little bit about why prayer life is so inconsistent for so many Christians. And I think it's because of this. When we don't pray, the negative consequences are not immediate. In fact, I think that describes the slow erosion that neglect produces in every relationship. It seems like every time a relationship completely comes unlatched, undone, the people often say, it's like it came out of nowhere. But the truth is that because neglect in a relationship doesn't always come with an immediate consequence, it's very easy to slip into, well, you know, it's what it is. It's good enough for today. Nothing has fallen apart until one day the connection that once was so life-giving is just completely lost. Now, if the day I stopped praying, everything went to hell overnight, I think I'd start praying again. Because I've noticed about me, and maybe it's true of you, Nothing gets me praying like trouble. Nothing gets me praying like the kind of trouble over which I have no more power to exercise. Trouble over my medical condition. Trouble over the economy. Trouble over the heart of another person I care about who I can't control. And when I get to that place of helplessness, I find that I very naturally pray. I don't need a sermon to remind me. I don't need anyone to urge me. I pray in response to trouble. But when I don't see trouble, it's very easy to be lulled into this idea that prayer is not really that vital to my well-being. And so Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. By the way, Sunday school teachers probably taught you at one point, ask, seek, and knock form the acronym ASK. Very cool. Has nothing to do with anything. I just think it's neat. 
Jesus calls us to pray no matter how far or how close God seems to be. Now, it's interesting the progression of these three words, ask, seek, and knock. I want you to picture a little boy or a little girl in a house, and they have a need that only daddy can, can meet. Uh, they want to reach something very high, whatever the case, and so they need something, and it seems to indicate three levels of nearness of daddy to this child. If daddy's right in front of us, we just ask. Daddy, can you get me those cookies right there too high? But if I'm like, Daddy, I need some cookies, and nobody answers, I'm like, where is Daddy? And so he says, if you can't find him, don't just start saying to the air, I wish I had some cookies. That's nonsense, right? So he said, where is Daddy? Because just wishing is not going to take care of the problem. If I can't find, I will seek, because I know where the help comes from. And if, as I'm looking, I find that Daddy's behind his study door, and I can hear the clickety-clack of the keyboard, and the door is closed, and I, oh, daddy's working, I'm not supposed to bother him, but I really want them cookies. Then I'm going to knock. Because I feel like God is behind a barrier, but my need drives me out, and I know I can only get help from him, so I will knock, and I will knock, and I will keep knocking until that door opens, because a child understands where does my help come from. What nonsense to stand and go, I want some cookies. Universe, if I only had some cookies. Or you stand in front of that door and say, I know daddy's working, but if I only had some cookies, we don't need to drop hints. He invites us. If I'm standing right in front, if if we're in a place where I'm close to you, God says, just ask me. And if you can't find me, if I feel far away, look for me. And if you find me, but I'm behind a barrier, knock, because if you do, here's the promise. You're going to break through. You're going to find me. And that's vitally important because your help comes from your Father in heaven. You see, the focus there is not on what I need, but on knowing clearly from whom I will get it. And that's at the essence of prayer. The heart of prayer is not focusing intensely on what it is I'm needing, but on who it is I'm seeking it from. Because I know that there are things I want and need which I am completely powerless to provide for myself. It's interesting that those three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, occur in the present imperative, which is just a fancy way of saying he's urging us to never stop doing these things. Keep on doing it. Don't give up praying because the minute you give up praying, you find that you are marooned and alone in a cold and sterile universe. That there is no other real source of help for the things that accost your soul than God, your Heavenly Father. And apart from prayer, apart from a real sense of God for you and with you, there's just fate. There's just stuff that happens to us in our lives. So he says, keep praying. Whether I feel close to you, whether I feel far from you, don't ever stop looking for me and crying out to me. See, by nature, I think we have selective memories for negative things. Have you noticed that? Don't you remember the bad times so much longer and more clearly than you remember the good times? I talk to people about their past. They have a near photographic record of all the... We're all like Rain Man. 
Uh, here's all the 568 times that you were mean to me. And here's what you're wearing the day you were mean to me on occasion number 362. We are so good at remembering all the catalog of hurts, disappointments, betrayals. And I say, wasn't there some good stuff in your life? I'm sure there was. I don't know, maybe Disney or something. I don't, but the bad stuff is what forges our narrative, isn't it? Because we seem to have this bias towards seizing on, noticing, remembering, and nurturing the negative memories of the stuff that hurt us. That's just part of how we're wired psychologically. It's a reflection of our sinful nature. So if we only pray when we're under distress, when we have something heavy on the line, and we have to make a request of God, and either he will say yes or no, if that's the only time that we engage God... It's going to start to feel like he says no at least as much as he says yes. If the, here, here's a, an illustration. The youth group's not here, so I'm going to just talk about teenagers for a second. Okay? Uh, but I'm not going to just talk about them. I'm going to talk about us because everyone in this room was a teenager once. Do you remember what that period of your life was like? Without a doubt, teenage years are the most completely self-absorbed, oblivious period of our lives. If, you have the par- if you're the parent of a teenager, can you at least give me an amen? I mean, it's the most self-absorbed. It's like the whole world is just their experience, their life. And trying to talk to your teenager is like trying to break into a bank. Hey, so how is school? Good. I've been trying to work with my, my teens when I call on the phone, which they freak out. What is this doing? This thing, you could actually talk on it. When I call them, they're like, hey, uh, yeah. I'm like, no, say hello. Talk to me like I helped make you, like I've taken care of you. Talk to me. Try to get a teenager to engage you in conversation is nearly impossible. But all of a sudden, one day they come home, Daddy, i got to talk to you. And guess what? All of a sudden, they're interested because why? They need something. Uh, can I go to a sleepover at my friend's house? Who's going to be there? Just some guys and girls from my, my school. Uh, hold up. Guys and girls, that's no big deal. Everybody, you know, whatever. No, sweetie, I don't think you can go. Can I go to a party at Jack's house? His parents are out of town and... No, sweetie, you're so mean. You always say no. I hate you. Now, in the defense of the teenager, statistically, they're probably right. Because they talk to you three times a year... And those three times they decide to talk to you, a lot is on the line, and there's a pretty good chance, 50-50, you're going to say yes, or you're going to say no. And on the basis of that massive data set of three conversations, they're going to cast judgment about whether you are good, whether you love them, whether you are for them. Think about what a distorted view of you as a mother or father is developed when the only time they want to talk to you is when they have a need. I think this is at the heart of why Jesus says, pray all the time. Don't ever stop. Pray about everything. Because if you don't pray about everything, then all the good stuff that happens every day, you're going to start being like an average teenager thinking, this stuff is just supposed to happen to me. When we receive without asking, it breeds presumptuousness and entitlement in our hearts. So what if we actually started requesting, praying for things that we presume upon. What if a a person went up to their their mom and said, Hey, mom, may I have a nutritious meal right now? 
And what if after that, they didn't just run off the play on their Xbox. They stood there and watched how you respond. And you said, yes, sweetie. And they realized that it, when they make that request, it involves a lot on your side of the equation. They never realized. Menu planning, grocery shopping, preparation of ingredients, cooking, serving on plates, and then cleaning up. And after all that, they go, I hate this stuff. We have every day. You're like, I'm going to destroy you. (laughs) But you see, if they every day for every meal actually asked if they could eat something, they would realize every day how often you say yes. We say yes to our children a hundred times a day for requests they never even think to make because to them, it's like the sky is blue, the sun rises, the sun sets. I'm supposed to have a decent life. I'm supposed to be comfortable. I'm supposed to have a roof over my head and people to drive me places and access to activities. My parents are supposed to stand in the crowd in my interminable concerts and recitals and games and cheer like I'm good at something I'm not good at. And I'm supposed to have all of that. It's just, it's just what life is, but this one thing that matters to me, I'm going to decide whether you're good or not on your yes or no. Imagine what that does to our relationship. But imagine just for a moment that every day in every need, we verbalized the request and saw that invisible to us previously, our life is filled with a hundred yeses we never even realized were being spoken to us. See, in Philippians 4, 6-7, the Apostle Paul echoes this teaching of Jesus, and he puts it this way. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about what? Everything. Even the stuff we take for granted, even the stuff we feel entitled to, even the stuff we think should just be part of normal life, what if we brought all of it to God? Lord, may I please be gainfully employed and able to support my family today. May I please get to work without somebody hitting me. May I please retain the full use of my legs and my eyeballs and my ears and my brain. God, my hands are at the heart of my making a living. May I please continue to have hands that work. And you realize that though we don't ask, our God is saying so many more yeses. I'm telling you, I I ask so many people who are in a bad place, does God really only say mostly no? And I understand that pain is driving, but they say, yeah, it's just how my experience has been. And I just want to encourage you, if that's where your heart is, it could be the way that you're keeping count. Because I promise you, if you will look in the right way, you will hear just how many yeses God speaks over you every single day. Are you with me so far? All right. Let's move on to a second kind of encouragement. There's an encouragement to pray for those who are insecure. I, I'm not particularly insecure. I think I'm awesome. Um, so I'm just kidding, of course. But I've never wrestled with, oh, I don't want to approach you because I don't think I'm... I'll just ask. But I meet more and more people who really wrestle with this, including some of my kids. They're just so shy about asking for anything. They're like, I don't want to. It's just not worth it. I don't want to trouble anyone. And I think that's a very common heart to have. I'm learning more and more. Many people are are bound by this feeling of, I just don't want to trouble anyone. It's not worth it. I'll just deal with it. 
And if we feel that way, it's going to impact our prayer lives for sure. One reason that some people don't pray more often is because they can't imagine in a world where ISIS and political corruption, injustice, trafficking, terrorism, all kinds of problems ravaging the human race, and they just cannot imagine that God really cares that much that their next ball is going to be a spare. Lord, help me pick up the spare. Lord, please let that purse go on sale before the end of the year. Please don't let my favorite restaurant ever close down. And those are trivial things, but we can't imagine that the God of the universe really gives a rip about that kind of stuff. And I get that, because the world is so filled with heavy things, it's hard to imagine. And you almost feel embarrassed, like, really? I'm going to pray about this? Why would God even listen to me? Like, oh, gosh, stop it. Have you ever had that moment where you got so much heavy stuff going on at work or in your relationship, and your kids are just chattering, hey, Dad, the channel's not working, can you, uh? And you're like, hey, shut up. Go away. Daddy is not ready to deal with this. Just get out of here. Have you ever felt that with your little kids, or is it just, am I the only evil person in this room? You've all been there, right? Where it's just chatter, chatter, and you're like, do you know what I'm dealing with right now? I don't care if your stupid channel's not working. Watch something else. Leave me alone. And because we're human and we're finite, or as Jesus very clearly puts it, you who are evil, because we are evil and sinful, we project our finiteness onto God. If I feel this way with my kids, why wouldn't God feel this way about me? I'm his kid. If I got a lot going on, I don't want the little stuff constantly nipping at my ankles. Just deal with it yourself. Do something. I don't care. How many of you watched the movie Bruce Almighty? Okay. That's <laughs> a hilarious movie. You want to, that's a movie worth watching just for the mental exercise of it. This guy criticizes God, so God says, hey, how would you like to do my job for a week? Imagine getting to be God for a week. He sucked at it. It was hard. But one of the things that haunts him is he begins to hear in his head the voices, and they're just nonstop of all the prayers. And he's going crazy. It's like that, that one hero's TV show where the person can hear everyone's thoughts, and they're going insane. And he's like, I got to make this go away. So he goes, what system can I get? And he finally ends up with email. It looks like Yahoo, but they call it Yahweh. <laughs> And so all of our prayers go to him in an inbox, and he goes to bed content that he came up with a perfect organization system. He wakes up and he finds over 1.5 million prayers in the inbox. I thought my inbox was bad. And in that moment, you see in Jim Carrey's face, he is overwhelmed. Just, oh, crap. Where do you start with 1.5 million requests overnight? And I think that's a very low number for the number of prayers being presented to God. And it's easy to assume then that if that would overwhelm us, surely God is trying to make things more efficient. Can we triage? Here is global terrorism and human trafficking. And then a 12-year-old, somebody looked at the mean in the hallway and they're devastated. Does God take to heart those issues in anywhere near the same level of seriousness and attentiveness? Does he care about injustice? Of course he does. But does he care about the broken heart of a 12-year-old? Of course he does. 
course he does. Look what Jesus, look what, what, what Peter says to, to reveal to us the heart of Jesus. Oh, there's the inbox over there. Yahweh. It's hilarious. Peter says, give all your worries and cares to God. He invites it. He doesn't say screen them, give him only the big ones, the life-determining ones. Give them all to him because he says he cares for you. Because God is not like us. He is infinite. The scale and complexity of the universe, the sheer number of things going on does not intimidate him at all. I can't wrap my mind around infinity. That's why I think most of us judge God based on, God, you should be the best version of us. If I acted like you, I'd be a jerk. I expect you, God, to act like the best human being that there is. Are you kidding? Why would you worship the best human being there is? If that's all God was, forget it. I'm going mountain biking every Sunday. I'm sleeping in. I'm not here to worship the best version of us. How lame is that? God is infinite. He is so beyond our understanding. It is a demotion to ask him to behave like us at our best. He is so above and beyond that. And what he says is, I am not in any way limited like you. Bring everything. I will take it all seriously. Why? Because I am not only infinite, but I actually care about you. I think this is why Jesus says these words. And this is the one verse that the prosperity gospel folks have abused and twisted the most. People read this and all they hear is, oh, that means everything I ask, I'll get. It doesn't say anything remotely like that. Here's what it does say. Everyone who asks will receive. Meaning, if you're resting with insecurity, if you think, why would God listen to me? Why would he care about me? What he's saying is there is not a person who lifts up a prayer for whom God does not have ears. You won't get everything you ask for, but you will be heard every single time by the the ears and the heart of a God who loves you like a good father. Very often we're hesitant to pray because we say to ourselves, I don't know if I'm really worth all the trouble. I don't know if God, I'm not like one of his best people. I don't do that much for him. In fact, I often screw up a lot. I've got some really loose moral ends right now I'm dealing with. I just don't know if, surely... There are many people ahead of me in line to be heard by God. I'm going to be honest, okay? Uh, I'm the senior pastor of a church, so a lot of people think if we're both standing in line trying to get Jesus' attention, he'd be like, can you just wait a second? Pastor Dave is talking. Shh. You probably feel at some level like that's how the kingdom works. Like there are some people who are a little more special than other people. Here's what Jesus is saying. You will not be heard because of your spiritual resume or your deeds that precede you. You will be heard simply because you thought to ask. Our access to God is not based on how many good things we do to curry his favor. Our access to God is entirely rooted in this. I know who my father is, and I asked That's all it takes. And everyone with that heart who asks will be heard by a loving father. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8.32. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If you think that God is stingy with his yeses towards you, if you begin to question whether God cares about you, always go back to the cross, because at the cross, God, once and for all time, demonstrated something very important. If he is willing to do that for you, there is nothing he is not willing to do for you. God is infinitely wise. I can't pretend to understand all of his decisions and his timing, but I know this much about him. He is infinitely loving, and he proved it on the cross for me. I can call into question a lot of things. It's 50-50 whether God will say yes or no, but I cannot question God's love towards me because at the cross, that question was settled once and for all time. There is no debate. There's no open-endedness about that issue. And if there is for you, the cross is where you will find your way home. You cannot resurrect a positive view of God by watching whether he says yes or no to you. The only way you're going to have the right view of God is when you start at the cross and realize that is the most important yes that God has ever spoken to any of us. I don't have the clock I usually have at Hoffman. I'm going to just wind it down here with the third point. This is the hard one. I think this is the one that's the most difficult to address. And that is encouragement for those are disappointed because they have prayed not for a new Tesla. I'm not saying that's evil, but it's probably not the most earth-shattering request. They haven't prayed for their eyelashes to grow longer or whatever. They've been praying for the salvation of a close friend. They've been praying for the healing of a loved one. They've been praying for justice to come to a place that is ravaged by injustice. And they prayed faithfully and earnestly for years, and nothing seems to happen. God seems to be silent and invisible, and they're starting to lose heart. Because they've done it right, and they wonder, is there anyone on the other end of this? Have you ever been talking to someone on the phone, and it's so quiet, you pause and go, you still there? Hey, you still there? That's why I make it my habit when I'm talking to someone, I always kind of mumble, mm-hmm. I want them to know someone other than, but there are times when you just start to wonder, when we do this, what is this exactly? Does it make any difference? Is anyone even hearing us? I don't have any simple answers to address that. The, the pain over disappointment when prayers don't go answered, especially earnest, long-standing, good prayers. God, save my marriage. Why is that a bad thing? Doesn't it honor you? I want it. And we pray and we pray and it gets worse. And we don't understand. That kind of pain is real and it will start to make a person question the fairness and goodness and existence of God. And I wish I had an easy answer to make that feeling go away, but I don't. I am not God and I cannot fathom why he does things the way he does. That is one thing I am uncertain of. I don't really understand all 
of the heart and mind of God. But there are some things I do really understand. And I'm encouraged that Jesus, in calling us to prayer, anchors onto things we can be sure of. When he calls us to prayer, constant prayer, he anchors that call to the goodness of God as a father. And basically, here's what he's saying. Don't pray in order to discover or prove whether God is a good father. Pray because you already accept and understand that's what he is for you. Don't pray in order to decide whether God is a good father. Pray because that's what you know he is. Now, that's easy enough to theologically accept. The Bible is filled with verses that attest to the goodness of God, even as a father. But how do you go from believing that theologically to feeling it in your heart? Because I think for many of us, the crisis of faith is I have theological beliefs that hem me in. They're like guardrails along the cliff, but life is pushing me over the, the guardrail. I believe that God is a good father. I don't feel like he is one. Some of us have felt that way about our earthly fathers. I think somewhere down there inside, deep, hidden, you might actually care about me, but I just don't see it. Where does our view of God as father develop? How do we come to know that God is, in fact, our good Heavenly Father? I've discovered in my life experience that it's very hard to learn that when I'm in distress and crisis. When my heart is more defined by the trouble I'm in and the fears that I have, I find that's a very difficult place to figure out whether God is my good Father or not. Let me give you an illustration that may, maybe it's imperfect, but maybe it'll help you understand what I'm trying to describe here. Imagine you got yourself into some financial trouble. I could see myself in that situation at some point if I don't get some help planning things. And so you find that you're in trouble and you need to borrow a large sum of money. So you go home in your kitchen table with a notepad and you start writing down a short list of people who are close enough to you that you can make this big ask. There's not a lot of people you can borrow tens of thousands of dollars from, right? So you're sitting there thinking, who do I know? And you come up with the list, and on top of the list is your best friend from college. Someone with whom you had a lot of significant firsts together. You were really close. You roomed together. And this is a person you would say with eyes closed, we're very tight. So you reach out, make an appointment, and, and as the day of the appointment approaches, you realize there's an apprehension growing in your heart. Because you realize that the fondness, the closeness that you have with this person is largely in the past. But ever since college, life and career and family took you on parallel paths, and you haven't walked very closely together in those years. I'm not saying there's animosity or neglect. There's just drifting. And so as you get ready to make this big ask, there's an apprehension because it is awkward to make requests in a context of a relationship where there is not a preceding intimacy and trust already developed. And if that person happens to say no, that no will feel 
so much more devastating because I don't know what that no means. I don't know how to process you just said no to me. It's an imperfect analogy, but here's what I believe about prayer. That the strength of our prayer life and our ability to weather disappointment has almost everything to do with how we walk with our God when we're not in crisis. I found this to be true in most relationships. See, Jeannie and I, over 22 years of marriage, have offended and disappointed each other a lot. Probably more me towards her than the other way around. But in any marriage, you disappoint and offend each other pretty regularly, don't you? Is, is there any married couple here who like, has no idea what I'm talking about? What do you, we're so awesome together. Well, maybe, I'm just asking because we need someone to teach a marriage seminar. No, no takers. So you, you offend each other a lot. And here's the thing. We've weathered it for 22 years because when we're not offending and disappointing each other, we've been, by God's grace, very intentional about building our intimacy. Tonight I'm leaving for, what is it, a five day? Is it four or five days? It's five, five days to Haiti. I'm going with Ed and Joe. We're going to scope out whether Haiti could become a mission field for our church. So I'm going to be gone for a week, and I realized Friday night, man, I'm not going to see Jeannie for a while, and we just we haven't connected. So I, And I know she's been wanting to see this. What a gift from God that I have a wife who wants to see movies like this. She wants to see Thor Ragnarok. I wasn't even that jazzed about it, but she's like, so I said, hey, do you want to meet me after I, I come back from Vinehouse Small Group and go see Ragnarok? She's like, yeah, where, what time? Um, 11 p.m. at AMC 30. Amazingly, she said yes. And at near midnight, we're sitting in a theater with like 10 other dumb people fighting off sleep to watch this movie. But I, and that's not the ultimate exercise in intimacy, but what I'm trying to illustrate is we've been very intentional about seeking out, carving out time and space for us to establish again and again we belong to each other. You're important to me. You are a priority in my life. I think about, I monitor whether we're connected or not. And when I don't feel connected, I reach out, try to grab onto you because I want to tell you when we're not disappointing and when we're not offending each other, what we do right now in these spaces to build intimacy and trust, they matter. That's how we're going to get through the storms of when you do something unthinkably stupid. I go, why would you do that if you love me? Oh, yeah, you do love me. You're just stupid. And I married you. All right. We'll get through it because when we're not being stupid, we're being intimate. When we're not being stupid, we're working hard at grasping onto each other. Please don't hear me say something I'm not trying to say. I'm not saying if God feels far away, it's all your fault. That is not at all what I'm saying to you. And if that's what you're wanting to hear, stop it. Because you're going to resist what it is that God really wants to say to you. And that is this. Don't decide your whole relationship with God on the outcome of this present crisis. Understand that the way you're going to rebuild a heart of trust that weathers those disappointments is that you will have a relationship with God that isn't defined by this crisis. That, yes, this trouble is real, 
My disappointment is real, but I also know you, God, apart from this trouble. You are the one who saved me once. And for this one no, you keep saying to me, there have been a million yeses that have kept me close to you, anchor me to you on that basis. I'm crying out to you for intimacy because if I lose you, I have lost everything. I'll close with this. In studying for the sermon, I read Scott McKnight's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And in that commentary, he records the testimony of a man named Lyle Dorset, who was talking about the devotional life of A.W. Tozer. How many of you recognize the name A.W. Tozer? Yeah. He was a great Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor who wrote the classic book, The Pursuit of God. You don't write a book called The Pursuit of God without having some spiritual depth. You can write a book called Ten Steps to Growing Your Church without necessarily having a deep relationship with God, but you can't write a book called The Pursuit of God without pursuing God a little bit. And that book, if you read it, it will shake you and inspire you. Here's what Lyle Dorsett wrote in his biography of A.W. Tozer. Although the author never boasted about his devotional habits, let me get to that slide. Although the author never boasted about his devotional habits, those few who knew him well knew that the angular man with little formal schooling learned much about his Lord and his God in the secret place. Tozer spent incalculable hours in prayer. Most of his prolonged prayer time with his Bible and hymnals as his only companions took place in his church office on the back side of the second floor. He would carefully hang up his suit trousers and don his sweater and raggedy old prayer pants and sit for a while on his ancient office couch. After a time, his spirit would drift into another realm. In time, he would abandon the couch, get on his knees, and eventually lie face down on the floor, singing praises to the lion of the tribe of Judah. In a generation where most of my professional colleagues, my pastor friends, are reading and writing about leadership, strategy, organizational communication. It's refreshing to read about a pastor who realizes that the heart of his ministry rises when he's face down on the floor worshiping his Savior with his whole heart. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that account deeply touches and inspires me. It humbles me. It makes me think about where my pastoral ministry is rising from. And it beckons me to mimic that kind of devotion. I don't know if that guarantees that he will weather every disappointment, but I know this. I cannot imagine pursuing God with such passion and intensity and not eventually seeing his face. I can't imagine spending hours every day between crises looking for the face of God this way and not being able to weather the storms when I am not hearing the answer I need to hear. And my view of God's goodness is being threatened. 
How will I know who God really is except that in the floor of my office, on my face before my Savior, I realize he is my good father. He is the friend of my soul. He loves me deeply. He cares for me. I used to know that once before all this trouble came. I used to know it when I, when I answered his call to salvation, when I trusted him for the first time. I knew that about him. I used to sing. I used to pray. I used to sit for hours wanting more of him. And if we return to that place, I can tell you this, it will help you and not hurt you in bearing the burden of disappointment when God feels very far away and mysteriously invisible and absent from your life. It's really hard to see God clearly when disappointment has settled so heavily on our hearts. But we learn to see God in our devotional lives, not simply in the hour of need. And if you're really wrestling with, if you feel like your trust in God is about to go over the edge, I want to encourage you to remember a time when you had a relationship with God that wasn't so wrapped up in this present trouble. But when you had clarity about who he was for you, And begin revisiting that relationship that was built on worship and adoration and a yearning in your heart. Then go back to the present trouble and ask him to help you process why he waits to answer you. I know that the people in my life with whom I can handle disappointment and betrayal and offense are the people with whom I walk most closely so that when you do something that hurts me, I know where we stand. I know how to process that hurt that you gave me. Jesus says that every time we pray, we're praying to someone who is way better than the best dad on earth. It's really important that we understand that in our hearts. And if you're, if you're yearning to hear the word yes from the heart of God, I'll just leave you with this reminder from 2 Corinthians. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, In him, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. He's simply saying that before any other yes can mean anything to us, the starting place of our prayer life is at the cross as we realize that in Christ, we hear and receive God's ultimate yes to us. And that means a lot because I wouldn't even know he's my father if he did not make me so through Jesus Christ. And if he weren't there, then I would have to endure 80 years in this cesspool of a world with no hope, no recourse, Prayer is a gift because God lives 
and he loves us, and he proved that on the cross. And if you're having a crisis of faith, I want to invite you, I want to encourage you, don't look anywhere else, start there at the cross. And understand what he said to you in what Jesus did for us. For all the promises of God, find their yes in him. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.